We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This thing on? See, now I'm getting mad. Because it's getting ready to be on. I want my whiskey to bite me a little bit. This is the kind of psychopath that I hang out with. I got beat up outside of a Denny's. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. He likes to get in the ex's nose. Something I can't do with this podcast because I drink too much. Chris Kruger. My rollerblading blonde mohawk producer. The pettiest, hardest drinking Bills podcast. I'm an adult. I know what I'm about. Everybody to another edition of the Rock Pile Report podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and we are here talking about life after day bowl. Yeah, do, you, do, we, do, we, do we start with the way he dressed for his? <laughs> no, I'm going to wear a suit and the pants. I'm going to get from the MC Hammer. You can't touch this music video <laughs> wardrobe closet. <laughs> oh, folks, we have a great show planned for you tonight, all focused on life after Dayball. But listen, you're talking about the Pettiest Bills podcast, baby. This is what we do. If you think we weren't going to dunk on that guy a little bit on his way out the door, what, what, what did you say? Who, who do you think we are? Who do you think you're dealing with? It was pretty funny seeing the tweet that came out where he got out of the vehicle and started walking into the Giants facility and they dubbed in the People's Court music. I retweeted <laughs> it. It's over on our Twitter handle, at Rockpile Report. It made me laugh pretty hard. He really did. Chris. I saw him pull into the space, but I didn't have like the sound on. That was, a hack, that was a hack suit. With that suit and that music, he really does look like uh, somebody who needs a public defender on his way into small claims court. Like, I... He looks like a guy who's going to appeal his parking tickets, but he dressed up for it anyway. Or like petty theft, like he stole somebody's like uh, <laughs> outdoor outdoor equipment, like a chainsaw, something like petty like that, like a chainsaw saws. Because Brian Dable looks like he would be a lumberjack's like the remember the still competitions yeah. on on ESPN. He looks like he would compete in those. <laughs> It's just funny because the, the suit coat says uh, Versace for men, and the suit pants said the JCPenney's uh, discount rack. 
I'm sorry. That's just that, that, that it was an awkward choice. If this is your big moment, I mean, I, I would have expected better. Would have expected a little bit better. And it's funny because there's people who listen to this podcast who are going to text me later or message me. Uh, uh, they, they're friends with this guy. Like they grew up with him. They know him around him. They're friends with him. They've had him in their bar. I'm sure I'm going to hear about this later. Listen, I'm not trying to make fun of your friend. I mean, I am, but also. If there's anything, I can criticize a million things. That suit was absurd. But so there he is, walking off into the distance, into the New York Giants facility where he is now the head coach. Now, before the Bills season ended, in the aftermath of the Bills' resounding win over the New England Patriots in the wildcard round, we recorded our final episode of the AFC East Roundup podcast, and it's a weekly show for those of you. I know I look at the numbers. I know that some of you listening to this don't take the time to go check that out. And I don't blame you, but you miss some things. I mean, first of all, you miss some hilarious banter between us and podcasters from around the division. You miss some insights on our opponents and things that are going on in their own fan base. that kind of make you feel better about our own. And also you get a Chris. Doesn't it make you appreciate what we have more talking to those guys every week? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, if you listen to the AFC East Roundup this year, it just, it's a similar feeling for like what the Patriots had been through during the Brady years. Yeah. Where it's like, it's a oh. getting to live it and document it in real time. It's been fun. So in the final episode for the season, we asked every one of our guests the same question. You know, we kind of ended every interview with the same thing. What will you be watching for most? In, in, what are you looking for most, at most intently this offseason? What are your concerns? What's the thing that you're most concerned about heading into the end of the year and how your team comes back next year? Now, since I hate repeating myself because redundancy is for those with way too much fucking time on their hands, here's what I had to say when it came to me. We've developed coordinators. We helped Leslie Frazier rehab his image. You know, Brian Dable's being interviewed by multiple football teams this offseason for the second year in a row. Now, last year, teams walked away from him, probably because their attitude, and I, we speculated about this before, that their attitude was, what did you do to make Josh Allen good? And when they found out that Josh Allen did a lot of the heavy lifting, fixing his own mechanics, they cooled on him. But what if that's not like what if a second time around they go, OK, you managed to fix this team and you developed a running game when you needed it at the end of the season. And you did some different things with a bad offensive line situation over the course of a season. This is where people come for your talent in those regards. I I want to know that the Buffalo Bills, I mean, I think that that's the biggest question is, can we continue this success that we've had as a franchise when Joe Shane starts interviewing for the Jets GM job and he leaves your organization and when a Brian Dable leaves your organization, have you coached up Ken Dorsey? Is he ready to step up as offensive coordinator? I believe so. How much does your system change? These are the like these are the questions that success brings you. Those for me are the biggest ones. First of all, how many losses are we actually going to sustain if we lost our defensive coordinator and our offensive coordinator? Mind you, the only defensive coordinator Sean McDermott's ever had. Do we maintain continuity in the performance of these units, in their ability to prepare for game day? I don't know. I think that in and of itself is if, just seeing who leaves and then who we hire to fill those roles. If we were to lose Les Leslie Frazier, I mean, you know McDermott's, I think, I think first two phone calls are going to be to Vic Fangio or Mike Zimmer. Yeah, I would hope so. I just, I just wonder. 
right? And I wonder what the future holds for those units. Those are the things I'm going to be watching like a hawk when this season ends. That was Drew from our final AFC East roundup show of the 2021 season. I do like that I kind of pegged Dayball and Joe Shane leaving. I mean, I just threw the Jets out there as as a thing. Just like, hey, it's, it's still the same state, but nonetheless, I... So there you have it, and I, and I find it incredibly fitting that after years of detritus from this podcast, the first pair of shoes didn't take long to fall because we lost AGM Joe Shane and Brian Dable to the New Jersey Giants as their franchise attempts to resurrect itself after spending the better part of the last decade just wallowing in irrelevance and shuffling through five different acting head, co- head coaches. Now, Chris, obviously losing Shane is tough because the guy's... <laughs> The work guys like him do behind the scenes that can't be quantified. Yeah. Guiding all of this franchise's decisions. For people who don't think that that matters, look at it this way. Brandon Bean was someone else's Joe Shane when they hired him away from Carolina. And I think we can all agree his presence here in Buffalo has been fairly transformative. Just think about it. He came in here. These are guys who worked their way up their corporate ladder within their within their team's environment, being literally from what the PR department to being assistant GM. Yeah, I'm still I'm still not used to to this. Like other teams, oh, we got to poach from the Bills. We got to pick from their coaching staff. We got to pick from their front office. I'm not I'm not used to that. Well, in Yet. that interview, I said, once you put something successful together, people come sniffing around for the secret sauce. And that's what's happening here in Buffalo. And it's interesting because when you see the way Brandon Bean came here with big ideas, right? Big ideas on how to make a team successful. Brandon Bean showed up here in Buffalo with a lot of bold ideas. And it threw a lot of people kind of for a loop. I mean, if you think about it. He comes, he shows up here and everyone says, okay, you fired Doug Whaley for this guy. What is, how is he going to make this better? And the first thing he does is take on a bold reset of our cap situation, trades away all of our problem players in 2017 in moves that had people screaming tank job. Sammy Watkins leaves. Darius. Darius leaves. Uh, who else did they release? Uh, uh, who was the cornerback? Gilmore. No, 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 no. The cornerback that they drafted in the second round and then traded away. Oh, was that the year we didn't have a first? Yeah. Oh, uh, Ronald Darby. No. Wait, wait. Maybe it was. Ronald Darby. Yeah, Ron Darby. Ron Darby. That sounds right. Kiko Alonso. Kiko Alonso. They, they literally gutted the roster in terms of high-end guys that were worth anything. And everyone said, okay, that's it. This is a tank year. Th- then he goes in and acquires Stefan Diggs out of nowhere. I remember being on the toilet when that news broke. And I was on there so long trolling Twitter that my legs went numb. <laughs> And like a baby deer, I tried to walk back out into the hallway and I just collapsed into a heap. And my wife looks over and goes, the hell's wrong with you? And I go, honey, just leave me here. I'm busy. (laughs) And I laid in that hallway for almost a half hour until feeling came back to my feet. Didn't we try to get uh, Stefan Diggs at the deadline the season before? I have no idea. But then even to the scouting and the selection of Josh Allen over guys like Lamar Jackson and Josh Rosen who were still available and still on the board they had identified Josh Allen as their guy and look is he or is he not the best 
of that draft class. It is, but also it's something I hear on Cowherd when I listen to him every day when he brings up quarterbacks in the in the draft every year. It's like, well, this guy, he has a strong arm, so he would be ideal for a place like Cleveland, a place like Pittsburgh, a place like Buffalo that is in outdoor stadiums, bad winters, high winds. You need a strong arm quarterback. Fair enough, but I, I guess the, the idea is, is that he took that gamble. All of these big ideas that have made our franchise what they are today came from this guy who was the AGM somewhere else. So if they've groomed this guy to go there and be that for someone else, like that's the gamble other franchises are willing to take when they see what our guy did. Oh, well, if he learned from him, he must be able to. Maybe he can siphon some of that away. Maybe some of this is what it is. Shane was pegged to someone who could serve in that kind of role for Brandon Bean. And... I, <sighs> I think it will be difficult for this football team to replace him behind the scenes. But the biggest impact when we talk about on the field that we're going to take this show and look at in depth is the departure of Bill's offensive play caller, Brian Dable, and some key members of the staff and what that means for the Buffalo Bills moving forward. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, as we launch into this discussion in earnest, I want to open a fresh one here. And I want to say unto you, there are some people here in our fan base who have a lot of irrational hate for Brian Dable. That would be you. If you were to if you were to ask me, which OC did did Drew hate more, Brian Dable or Rick Dennison? I would be like, that, that's a, that's a toss up. It's because Dennison wasn't here long enough. If Dennison had stuck around longer than a singular season, which is actually something we're going to talk about here later, um, just I, I don't think that I would have, uh, or at least I, I think that this would be more even. Brian Dable is the only offensive coordinator the Bills have had that's made it, what, 2018, 2019, 2020, four seasons? He is the best offensive coordinator we have had since Ted Marchabroda. I'm glad you brought write that it name down. up because again, write it yeah, down. Write that name down because we're going to come back to that a little bit later in the podcast, and I'm going to hit you. And as White Goodman put it, let me hit you with some knowledge. That's what I'm going to do for you, Chris. All right. So there are also some folks in our fan base who, like me, think that 
For everything he does that's positive, there's also some absurd moments where his decisions to try to ham-fist parts of this team's just game that aren't necessarily effective into poor... Just put them into practice. Put them, force them into the play calling. Almost like he's trying to trick his opponents rather than leaning into the strengths of this football team. And then there's a broader group who are pretty accepting of Brian Dable and what this offense has become with him around, a number of whom are worried about what the future of this team looks like on offense, which is fair considering that as the 2021 season illustrated, having the number one defense doesn't mean a whole lot. Chris, we made the the number one and number two defenses statistically to make the postseason got annihilated in the playoffs when they ran into elite offenses. Yeah, that'll Not happen. even just, hey, it, it was a the number one defense against the Kansas City Chiefs offense. How did that go? What, almost 600 total yards? Yeah, but aren't the rules today massaged towards yeah. offense? Like, this is an offensive game, so, like, you, it's like, you know, back in the 80s, you could just tackle a receiver and it was fine. Now you Back can't. in the 80s, Andre Reid is in the Hall of Fame because the stuff he was doing across the middle of the field was unheard of. Best receiver because across there, the middle. Because there was safeties whose job was to kill you. Their job was to hurt you if you were dumb enough to try to catch a pass across the middle of the field. Now? Yeah. Now that's frowned upon. Now you need guys like Poyer and Hyde who can drop and cover and do different things, but who can do it with finesse? Not so much just brute, hey, I'm a linebacker. <laughs> I'm a linebacker playing safety, and my job as a strong safety is to actually just, I'm, go- I'm here to hurt you in front of your family and friends. That used to be the strong safety job. Now it's a little more nuanced than that. But it speaks volumes that the best defenses in the NFL to make the postseason got decimated before the championship round, and somehow the Bengals with Eli Apple and Chidobe Awuzie, both of whom are defensive backs who failed with their first franchises after they got drafted, are going to rep the AFC in the Super Bowl. I want to start by talking to that group. And those among us... There's a lot of reason here for optimism that I think fans aren't... The, the, the people doing the most hand-wringing aren't thinking about. Both in our franchise's history and in recent NFL history... And I haven't heard enough about that. I don't hear any of this going on. on. I don't hear it on the radio. I don't hear anybody on social media. I see a lot of angry tweets. I see a lot of Twitter debate. I don't hear anyone talking about all the reasons that none of this shit matters. I'm going to be frank with everyone here. The improvement in the Bills offense was a real landmark in Brian Dable's career. But only because the bar was set so painfully low for him. He failed in his first two seasons with the Browns. His teams ranked 29th and 31st in scoring, 29th and 32nd in passing yards, 8th the year he made Peyton Hillis relevant. Remember, that guy was on the cover of Madden. And then his career ended. Then 20th in rush yards the following season. He, he had one failed season with the Chiefs, which, was as we joke about all the time, was his second time being Brady Quinn at quarterback. All this talk about him being a good guy, Chris, you must have done something terrible if you somehow get saddled with Brady Quinn in not one but two different NFL cities. What are the odds of that? (laughs) It's like, hey, this quarterback fell out of this city, and so did you, and somehow you both ended up back here. What do you think that first meeting was like? 
when they were like, hey, Brian Dable, we hired you. Great. It's like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's like, wait a minute. You suck and I suck. You suck more, though. <laughs> no, you're the one who sucks more. That season with the Chiefs, they were 32nd in scoring, 32nd in passing yards, and 5th in rush yards. He goes on to New England as a position coach, works with works with Bill Belichick, then gets recommended for the job at Alabama. Because you know, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick are boys. Yeah. He goes to Alabama as the offensive coordinator, leads them to a national title, gets hired by the Bills in 2018. Well, I think the one thing that you're that you're leaving out, and you've made note to it before. I think when we hired Dable back in what eighteen, so you had was it Jalen Hurts and Tua mm-hmm. that championship season? Yes. So Jalen Hurts was not cutting shit in the title game. He's having and, a bad game at the worst possible moment. And then they went to Tua, and then you had came on the show and and I think you had made mention of that he was putting two game plans together in case Jalen Hurts was going to get a start and then if Tua Tunga Viola was going to get a start. He had been pushing all season for For Tua Tua. to start because he said, listen, Jalen Hurts is a great athlete. Right now, Tua is the better passer and we're going to need that at some point. And I have a package of plays designed for this kid if you'd ever just let me roll that offense out. And Saban, being Saban, Says, no, I'm going to trust the guy. I'm going to trust the guy who took me to a title last year. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, then he took me to a title and we lost the last second to Clemson on a on like a ridiculous touch on grab by Mike Williams. If it wasn't for that, Jalen Hurts would have a have a title ring from that season. So it was interesting that he had that kind of preparation acumen. Right. He had that. He had that ability to prepare game plans to that degree. Yeah, because Jalen Hurts and Tua Tungaviola are two, two totally different yes. quarterbacks. So he gets here, and it's slow going for the Bills' offense in 2018, but I give him a pass for that because, in, in my mind, that team was designed to suck. They spent $12 million on the entire offensive line. I, I remember making the joke, Taylor Lewan made more than our entire starting offensive line by himself. I thought Taylor Lewan played for the Bills. <laughs> See, this is why people love you. Just your salty one-liners. That's hilarious. Zay Jones, Chris, was his most consistent wide receiver to work with because he was essentially given the uh, the fat version of Kelvin Benjamin and the ghost of Chuck Clay's past out there just jogging around the field while Robert Foster ran the occasional streak route. KFC Benjamin. That's where you coined the phrase or the analogy. You came up with your cookie analogy, and I like yeah. that. So... He didn't have many chocolate chips in the cupboard to work with. And no, that's not a, that's just a cookie thing. Anybody who tries to make that a race thing, I'll see you in hell. Heading into 2019, though, Dable had never been part of a team or offense that ranked higher than 22nd in win percentage, higher than 22nd in total yards, higher than 20th in total points. So at that point, you could look at Brian Dable and say to yourself, like, your, your career is pretty pretty bad to mediocre at best, right? Yeah. Okay. Here's here's another analogy. So early on in Dayball's career with Brady Quinn, it was like he was getting ingredients at Tops, and then now he started going to Wegmans. Yeah, he started shopping at Wegmans? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he upgraded? Yeah, up, upgraded to Wegmans. So then in 2019, the Bills make the playoffs again, but it wasn't because of the offense. They were 23rd in scoring, 27th in passing yards, but second in NFL sack percentage. And that last one, that's the important one. 
The offense wasn't dynamic. The offensive line wasn't made of world beaters. But you were already seeing signs that Allen's obvious athleticism was going to produce some wonky stats like this and give you opportunities to make some crazy shit happen. Despite the passing attack not taking off, you could see the bones of a quarterback who could make off-script plays and had otherworldly athletic talent. Chris, that game that they won in uh, 2018 against the Jaguars after Jalen Ramsey called him trash? Yes. And he ran not once, but I think twice for more than 50 yards a clip. (laughs) He's just running through their defense like a deer. It's like, okay, you have that now. Then we hit 2020 and 2021, where the Bills have been one of the most potent offenses in the entire NFL, with Allen and Dable at the helm, with new passing concepts that harnessed Allen's physical tools and just his raw playmaking ability, while Allen himself just forced his way into the MVP conversation. And that kind of success is going to get your coordinator noticed across the NFL landscape. We did a handful of podcasts last summer with teams interviewing Dable. We were guests on a whole slew of podcasts for teams that were interviewing Brian Dable for their head coaching job. Just to pick our brain, see what we thought. And it was interesting to most of them that I wasn't gushing over this guy. The biggest reason for it is that the jump we saw from 2018 and 2019 Dable to 2020 and 2021, I don't give a shit if it's not fair, quote unquote, to say, but there is an incredible amount of this improvement that he owes to his quarterback. And the concerted effort made to improve the team's trenches and its skill position talent levels from 2019 to 2020. When you look on paper, the offense made some strides that you can't... Some of this stuff isn't heard of. A 6% increase in on-target throw percentage. Josh Allen went from 21st in the NFL to 5th. And remember all the talk about how he fixed his mechanics? Yeah, that'll go that'll go a long way. 82 more passing first downs. Well, that's what happens when you have talented wide receivers. In 2019, when we made the playoffs against the Houston Texans, who was our best wide receiver? Uh Patrick DeMarco. <laughs> if I ever see a fullback pass more than 10 yards downfield, I'm going to snap. If I ever see that again, I'll lose. I will lose. Chris, I will lose. It's like a 50-yard pass into double coverage. To a, to, to a fullback. Like That's what we were dealing with, guys. Okay? So, with that in mind, 82 more passing first downs from the previous year, which is crazy. And it, even though it sounds small, a 0.3 second improvement in pocket time. Everyone goes, oh, 0.3 seconds on an, on an average over the course of an entire football season. That doesn't sound like much. We were tied for 31st in 2019. And in 2020, we jumped to second in the, t- being tied for second in the NFL. It's how slim the margins are in the NFL between teams that suck at something and teams that are good at something. No, I'm not going to say, I'm not giving you all of this information to say the Bills don't need Brian Dable, right? I'm not going to, I'm not saying, well, look, uh, but, but, but. what I'm, what I'm hoping you guys take away from this part of the conversation is that things don't have to decline simply because the play color changes. Because Dable wasn't without his flaws. And given the context of the text conversations that were leaked as part of the Brian Flores fiasco in Miami, there was discussions of friction, which I believe. I mean, Chris, if there was friction here, 
part of it might have to do with the fact that for as dynamic as their offense has been, they've had some weird, uh, I don't know, weird statistical outliers in some of this stuff. I Real red zone issues. That's, that's what I look at. The Bills' late-season surge this year helped boost them to first place in the NFL in red zone percentage. But for long stretches of the season, they were wallowing in the mid-teens of the NFL, which has been present in Buffalo ever since he arrived. Ever since he got here, we've been an up-and-down red zone offense. Second, let's look back over, if you think about it like this, you look back over our own franchise's history on offense over the past 20 years, now, there's just stuff here. There's stuff here that I think is worthwhile to discuss in the scope of whether or not we should be worried that Brian Dable's leaving. He historically was not great until Josh Allen took that next step. I think I've laid that out pretty well, right? Yeah, but if you go back to Allen's draft year, nobody, he was, it was like a, as our friends at bootleg football, EJ Snyder has his ball of clay. Yep. Josh Allen was Okay. He was the typical ball of clay. There's a guy that's got all this talent. You just have to be able to shape it like Play-Doh into what you need. So was the roster. So was the entire makeup of this fucking football team. And this is a dynamic that nobody's talking about. And it's present in our own franchise's history. I mean, we are Chris, I think if anything, if there's a, if there is a glaring example of this, this dynamic that I'm about to lay out for you, it's the Buffalo Bills. Okay? First, and I want to warn everybody, spoiler alert, if you're sensitive to horrific football memories and terrible execution and some players' names who you just revile, pause the show, grab yourself an airline sick bag right now, because you're going to fucking need it. Chris, do you remember when Mike Malarkey got hired? Vaguely. Okay. He actually got hired over Dick Duron back in 2004 because his offensive mind was supposed to lead to the development of J.P. Losman. That never materialized. Losman never developed touch on his passing. We were one of the worst scoring offenses of his era. And then hilariously, he quit on the team after two seasons. <laughs> Here, The most talented players on that football team were Willis McGahee, an aging Eric Moulds, a rookie Lee Evans, or a young Lee Evans. They only had two players with more than 300 yards receiving his final year. How embarrassing is that? Then the team circles back and hires Dick Duran, who they passed over on the first time around. And that went terribly because Duran, being a defensive guy, couldn't find an offensive coordinator capable of elevating the team. Uh, what, Steve Fairchild, uh, Turk Schonert, Alex Van Pelt, everybody gave this thing a try. Wasn't Schonert fired during the preseason? Schonert's the guy that I remember because he was fired after the preseason when our offense was terrible, and he was later quoted as saying that the team wanted to run a quote-unquote pop-gun offense. But when you look at the talent he had at his, his disposal, the team went out and spent their money in free agency. I remember the, I remember the big to-do about the signings. They went out and spent on two of the biggest offensive tackles in the NFL, Derek Dockery and Langston Walker. Those are names that are treated on this podcast like the name Voldemort. They are he who shall not be named, or else Drew's going to drink another half dozen beers. We spent a ton of cash on these guys, right? And then... 
you say to yourself, okay, these are fat dudes. These are big dudes. Half of their strength comes from the fact that they're hard to run around if you're a speed guy. And you certainly can't bull rush them. And then the team decides, to hell with Turk Schoner, we're going to bring in somebody new and install a no-huddle offense. Chris, the two of the heaviest guys in the NFL running down the field. That sounds like a good idea, right? It does. <laughs> they had one running back. They had Marshawn Lynch, Trent Edwards, a prime Lee Evans, and a bunch of rookie offensive linemen, and only one skill player with more than one receiving touchdown that entire season. Again, embarrassing. Over the next couple of years, we saw Chance spread offense with Fitz. He had Stevie Johnson, Fred Jackson, and then what? Oh, yeah. He had uh, T.O. Two. Oh, yeah. T.O. Terrell Owens. Yeah, T.O. We gave him the key to the city, Chris. <laughs> the key to the city. What a joke. David Johnson had one good catch against the Raiders, and Donald Jones is good at radio. I literally don't remember him for I cannot think of one singular stellar play that he made over the course of his career as a Buffalo Bill here. Well, Donald Jones is definitely not good at radio, I'll tell you that. Ah. Awful on the air. Nate Hackett. <laughs> Nate Hackett, yeah. New Broncos head coach, New Nate Broncos Hackett. New Broncos head coach, Nate Hackett. Okay, he's next on the list. Zero offensive identity. But he was a rookie offensive coordinator. With what? A rookie quarterback and a pair of rookie wide receivers? Woods and Watkins? Piling an offense behind an offensive line of literally just all cast-offs from other teams. It got so bad that they talked Uncle Rico, Kyle Orton, out of retirement to try to save Doug Marone's final season. And even that couldn't get him into the playoffs. You remember that? Just a healthy E.J. Manuel sitting on the sideline watching Kyle... Like, Nate Geary, mustache, Kyle Orton. I remember from that season the uh, the Vikings game. Most notably be, be, because I remember watching it with my, now, my like, I guess, ex-father-in-law. Yeah. And Robert Woods fumbling the football on a crossing route where he caught it and changed hands and just <laughs> dropped it. And then Marone challenged it to be incomplete and won. And then later in the game, you had the Sammy Watkins touchdown to end the game to win it. <laughs> That's what sticks out for me for that season. I remember walking out of that game. I remember leaving early because I was like, this is bullshit. I'm <laughs> out of here. Oh, I hated I hated the Doug Marone era Buffalo Bills. But then they fired him and brought in Rex Rowell. Actually, no, they didn't fire him. He fired himself backwards down a floor. Like I threatened to do with Josh Allen, he put a beer in each hand and fired himself backwards down the stairs thinking it was going to land him somewhere better. Where is he now? Uh, I think he's an, an Alabama offensive line coach. <laughs> no, he is not. They, he's not in that position. He got replaced. Saban replaced him. I can't believe he didn't. I can't believe he didn't know that. But apparently, but apparently he's. I've there's been talk that he's eating baloney somewhere, wherever he is. There is an NFL job waiting for him. Do you know who it would be with? I'm assuming it's going to be cleaning up the jock straps in New England. We just talked about him. Nate Hackett oh, has a role for Sorry. him on his staff. So is this what it's like when uh like like. It's reverse Pretty Woman. Yeah, like that's what if, this is. It, it would be like Pretty Woman if if Richard Gere and uh, what's-her-face? Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts get married at the end of Pretty Woman. 
and then they get divorced and she takes most of his shit. Yeah. And then later she sees him homeless on the side of the road and goes, all right, get in the limo. Just, just get in, just get in the limo and we'll find a place for you. Yeah. There's, there. <laughs> expect Doug Marone to be on Nate Hackett's staff. Ah, uh, well, the thing with Nate Hackett, he had no offensive identity, but what was he supposed to do with all that? He had nothing to work with. So then they get fired and they bring in Rex Ryan. And that's where things get interesting because out of the ashes of those Marone just kind of stagnant teams, at least somebody with a vision for what this roster should be takes takes the reins. And he, he acquired some key talent in key places. All right. You go into that season and he says, listen, we want to build a bully. What does that mean? We're going to run the football. So he signs Tyrod Taylor out of free agency away from Baltimore. He was familiar with him from his time there. Says, I want you to be a part of this quarterback stable, maybe my starter. I mean, probably the most athletic, arguably, Chris, I don't even think it's arguable. Up to that point, the most athletic quarterback we ever had. Correct. Okay. In his prime, LaShawn McCoy, they pull off that somehow just swindle LaShawn McCoy away from the Eagles and then bulk the trenches by acquiring nastiness in the form of Richie Incognito and putting Deion Dawkins out there. And I think at first it was Cordy Glenn, wasn't it? <laughs> that team and those acquisitions, when you added like when you added them to the veterans that were there, right? The Eric Woods and the Cordy Glenn and the now experienced duo of Robert Woods and Sammy Watkins, those teams were damn near good enough to get the Bills into playoff contention. It didn't work. But even then, there and even then there was two offensive coordinators drugged through the mud during those seasons: Greg Roman and Anthony Lynn. Both of those guys spent time calling plays, and neither of them could put together a viable passing attack. Some of that's Tyrod's fault. Some of it's the fault of the talent that they had. But isn't Robert Woods a good receiver? Oh, yeah. he a Great run blocker. Great receiver. Great but receiver. How many, He's the full package, and yet Buffalo couldn't figure out how to use him. How many times on this podcast did we mention that Tyrod Taylor is a I-have-to-see-you-open-and-then-I-will-throw-it quarterback? Oh, yeah, for sure. But so I guess that's my point is like they had pieces, but they didn't have enough talent, right? There wasn't enough coordinating talent and there wasn't enough talent on the field to net them a receiver that finished with more than 615 total yards in 2016. That's embarrassing. Like what, what kind of stone age offense are you running? One of the calling cards of that ridiculous era of Bills football, the drought, the stagnation, the embarrassing performances that left us throwing wicker furniture around our patios. Oh, that might just be me, right? Only you. <laughs> they left us all just crying in our beer. Just, I don't know. These offensive performances were atrocious collectively for 20 years. There was not a single talented offensive performance to be seen. You, you But that stems from the fact that you didn't have any players. Chris, you can only make cookies, to your analogy, yep. when you have the right ingredients. And not a single one of these teams could ever assemble the right ingredients. They had Sean Nelson. That's the name that they pinned all of their tight end hopes on. How many other failed players? Uh, the elusive Michael Gaines. Yeah, Michael Gaines. Jay Reimersma. The tight end that they signed who was the size of a refrigerator, and one day he just sidestepped a guy, and the announcers thought it was so funny that they called him the elusive Michael Gaines, and I just, I've never been able to forget that. <laughs> the, the guy is damn near 300 pounds. He's least, he's a less athletic Lee Smith. That's what our team was. 
Now, when you look at what this roster is today, the quarterback issues are a dead horse at this point. But look around those players. Because, Chris, the quarterbacks during that era, everyone goes, well, we didn't have any quarterbacks. Okay, but look at what else. Okay, everything else was shit. From 2004 to 2016, the Bills had 13 different offensive linemen listed as starters who were never starters again anywhere else in the NFL after they left the Buffalo Bills. Doesn't that tell you that they were bad to begin with? None of those teams had more than a single wide receiver threat in a single season. Our running backs were always the backbones of those teams. Running backs, in an era where the game had already shifted to a passing NFL, where Tom Brady and Peyton Manning were setting the world on fire and essentially sat on top of the AFC. During that 20-year run, Chris, who threatened the two of them? What AFC teams really, truly challenged the Steelers, maybe the Steelers, the Chargers? They all still had great quarterback play. I thought it was for the most part, it was New England, Indianapolis, and Pittsburgh representing the AFC in the Super Bowl. And look at how good those teams were. You know, they they, they went from the bus to Willie Parker out of nowhere. (laughs) They all of a sudden just had a good... They never had bad offensive lines. Their offensive lines were perennially talented. Those teams had... those The drought-era teams had crap quarterbacks, but the talent level around them were so bad... That we as fans and those coaches who hired these offensive coordinators had to hope and pray that the acumen and play design and play calling that their coordinators were bringing in was enough to elevate every single facet of those offenses because we didn't have a fucking choice. We were literally taking guys, some of whom, like Nate Hackett, were green, had no business coaching rookies. And like cinder blocks in a mob movie, chaining these shitty rosters to their ankles, pushing them off a bridge, and telling them to swim because all of our lives depended on it. We don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world where our quarterback is the physical embodiment of human willpower. He is competitive spirit, trapped inside of a moose with a rocket arm. Our skill positions, even without Emmanuel Sanders, let's say we lose him in the offseason, still arguably one of the deepest in the AFC. And without a doubt, the deepest in the AFC East. There isn't another team in our division who has a wide receiver one, wide receiver three, and a tight end the way we do. Correct? True. Okay. Running backs? We're no longer beholden to this idea that we have to play three yards in a cloud of dust offense. Because while there isn't a bell cow back, there isn't a star... They're serviceable, and they're multifaceted. And our offensive line, maybe the weakest part of the entire offense, the one that left our quarterback the most pressured quarterback in football, is good enough to continually propel our team deep into the postseason and has room to get better because Josh Allen is that fucking good. He's that generational of an NFL player. And that's the thing to underscore here. This is no longer a roster that requires somebody else with a headset on to do the heavy lifting. They have the talent to do at least 75% of that on their own. And listening to Brandon Bean's season-ending presser, they understand that there's still room for improvement on that side of the ball in terms of consistency, in terms of speed, in terms of you know players who can create mismatches that are advantageous to this offense. For the first time since the 90s, the talent is now supporting the coaching staff and not the other way around. 
And before anybody goes, oh, what are the odds, though, that switching offensive coordinators could work as well as it did the last two years? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm making ridiculous sounds at you. That's what you deserve. Ask yourselves this question. When's the last time you ever heard a Bills fan say out loud over a handful of beers at the bar or in the parking lot before a game or worse, after a football game? Man, if only Ted Marsha Broda hadn't left. Chris, your boy, Teddy Marsh, right? You called him the best offensive coordinator in franchise history. I said Dable's the best since Marsha Broda. Okay, that's fair. The early 90s Bills that made those Super Bowl runs, Ted Marshall Broda was the offensive coordinator on that football team for 1990, 1991, a little bit before that. And he is still recognized as the most successful offensive coordinator in franchise history in terms of offensive rankings and team win-loss record. He provided the framework for the K-Gun offense that set the world on fire. The Bills rode that system to back-to-back Super Bowl appearances. And Marsha Broda then rides off to rides that success, much like Brian Dable did, to a head coaching gig of his own. Yeah, Indianapolis. Baltimore. The Baltimore Colts, they still were, I think, at that point. No. No? They were they were Indy? They left Baltimore to the year eighty three was their last year because Okay. Because Elway didn't want to play for the Colts. Okay. Okay. And because he was like, I don't think that this is a this franchise is something's wrong with this. And he, Elway was right because one year in to Elway's career, Baltimore f- into the night in the middle of the in the night, middle of the lo- night with a with the Mayflower Moving Company <laughs> moved over to Indianapolis. I love how you remember this is this is my another reason I love Chris. Yeah, he he. There's so many things Chris doesn't know. And yet he remembers this. People are gonna listen. People are gonna listen because I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna edit that out. People are gonna listen to that and be like Baltimore Colts. That wasn't. That was a thing in the '80s, early '80s, not the '90s. Uh, his replacement, Ted Marshabroda, he leaves, and everyone goes, "Well, there goes the, the guy, the guy we had all this success under." He rides off into the sunset. And his replacement's a guy that most of you have probably never even fucking heard of or thought of in the last 20 years. And if you say that you did, you're a damn liar. Tom Bresnahan. Bresnahan? Bresna Bresna doesn't fucking matter. I like how he's... You have it written out here. It's not... Yeah, I wrote it down so I could say it right, and I still can't. It's not... There's no H after the S. Bresnahan is... Bresnahan? Is the correct term. Okay. Also good. Well, it's a shame that nobody remembers him. He is statistically the second most successful Bills offensive coordinator. I mean, he went 50 and 30 with a career here from 92 to 96 and took the Bills to two Super Bowls. That following season after Marshall Broda left, the Bills were still top 10 category, top 10 in each of the following categories. Fifth in passing, fifth in passing touchdowns, number one in rushing touched, uh, rushing yards. Okay. Chris, a first-timer, a guy in Tom Bresnahan who had never run an offense before, had never called his own plays. He picked up the reins of a well-oiled machine, and it worked differently, but it didn't keep the Bills from reaching another pair of consecutive Super Bowls. Number 12, number 83, number 80, number 34, 
73, 75, and 67. Those were the guys who mattered the most. And when you look at this football team, 17, 14, 60, 13, 88, the bones are still there to have something similar. And well, it sounds like I'm dragging ancient history into this. Now that I've hit you all with the nostalgia, I've got a more recent corollary. The Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks were pretty solidly a joke of a franchise for a long time. Matt Hasselbeck was probably the first one to bring any kind of change to that. And but Russell Wilson is the quarterback that put them on the map. Now, Daryl Bevel was their coordinator from 2011 to 2017. And Wilson gets drafted and starts playing football in 2012. During that time period, Daryl Bevel goes on to a Super Bowl win and an 8-4 and four career playoff record. Think about how many times you have to make the playoffs to be 8-4. and four. A lot. He leaves to go take on a coaching position. They get three years of Brian Schottenheimer, who comes in and everyone goes, well, he's never called plays before. I don't know what's going to happen. Three straight years of playoff appearances. A one in three playoff record. I mean, the offensive line, it's been terrible, which has made them pass heavy, but their offense continued to hum. They did it differently, but they continued to do it. Okay? That's the. With the loss of Schottenheimer as their offensive coordinator, they replaced him this year with Shane Waldron. But with the deterioration of their offensive line, loss of any kind of running back talent due to injury, and lack of hits in the draft over that. Chris, I don't think it's unfair to say that the, nobody has drafted more poorly than the Seattle Seahawks over the last two or three years. Correct. They took a first round draft pick a year or two ago who I don't think he's played more than five games. They've wasted a lot of defensive picks and they've let their offense languish because they're looking at this. Chris, who does that sound like? A team that is invested every time they get a, a quality pick on uh, in the draft, they use it on defense. And you turn around and you go, wait a minute, doesn't Russell Wilson need some things? Don't you want to support that guy? Well, they didn't. And it finally caught up with them. They finally missed the postseason, which is just the second time it's happened since Russell Wilson took over as their quarterback in 2012. If all of the information I just glommed into your earlobes doesn't underscore the fact that in many cases in today's NFL, it's the talent that drives the bus, more so than the offensive coordinator, then I don't know what the hell to tell you. I just know that I made one hell of a case for it here. And I'm going to open myself a fresh beer because I feel like I've earned it. Chris, grab that for me out of the fridge. Now, here's the question. Who can come in here and be a better pickup, a better version of the Brian Schottenheimer hire? More in the vein of a Bresnahan for the Buffalo Bills in 2022. The Bills seem to think that man is former passing game coordinator Ken Dorsey. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm smart enough to know (laughs) anything about this. Luckily, there's a guy here who knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And so with that, since I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about in regards to this, we bring in Mr. Nathan P. Geary. You think I know? Mr. Geary, in relation to the Buffalo Bills... And the Ken Dorsey hire. Mm. Okay. So we just spent a solid chunk of about 30 minutes laying out the foundation of a conversation that when you change offensive coordinators on a football team as talented as this one, and it's kind of like you're just 
you had a Ferrari and now you're turning it over to another driver and you're saying, don't crash this. You're not asking someone to reinvent the wheel, correct? Or is that, is that a fair statement for I me think, to make? I think you were probably you, you were steering in the right direction, uh, trying trying to bring like a, a race car into this. I think I think that's probably the best way to put it. I wouldn't even say it's the guy driving the car. It's your pitch crew. It's your, it's your it's your you know pit manager, right? And your pit manager's back there, but he's not fueling the car. He's not driving the car. He's making sure that you are making good decisions on the course or, uh, you know, on, on the track, whatever. I'm not, I'm not a NASCAR guy, but you, you get the analogy here. And, and I think where I'm going with that is, especially now in the NFL, these systems are so malleable to, you know, different quarterbacks. I, I said this on the morning show this morning um, when I filled in, and it was that I, I, what I really wanted from the next Bills offensive coordinator kind of sounds silly, um, but I'd like him to make the offense easier um like the offense is like you know a doctorate level five quarterbacks could play at the level that josh maybe one other quarterback could play at the level that josh allen plays at the hardest parts of the field right like josh in this offense is designed to beat teams 10 to 25 yards down the field every single play essentially right Mm -hmm. and then you've got the short passing game but it's it's more of an intermediate it's a seven to nine yard you know um passing game with cole beasley the last two years but this is an offense that is highly complex it's highly malleable and changes from week to week based on the matchup so for me the guy running the plays it's not that he's unimportant in this whole process but this isn't you know where it's shut up and drive the quarterback. This is 2022. What Peyton Manning was doing, you know, in the early parts of the 2000s and then later on in his career where he was basically, you know, calling the shots at the line of scrimmage. Now, I'm not telling you that's what Josh Allen does. Um, but Josh Allen has a lot of power at the line of scrimmage because he knows what to do. He is well-versed when he's on the fields, like between the ears. Josh is prepared for a lot of looks. And the more experience he gets, the more prepared for looks he's going to be. And I think for me, I keep thinking about how do you make an offense easier? And I think, you know, part of that is creating more opportunities for yards after catch. You know, creating, even if it's a simple um, screen game, a traditional running back screen game. It doesn't have to be some kind of complex, no. you know, you're moving one <laughs> way and you're coming back another and it's a double reverse screen pass. Like it, you can have very simple concepts where you have one pulling offensive line, um, offensive lineman, you know, you'll guard and, you know, have some misdirection one way and, and create opportunities to get Josh layups in the offense. That to me is the most important part because Josh is going to do the hard stuff really easy when you call a complex play that requires a perfect precision football that gets thrown 40 yards on a rope josh is one of two or three guys in the nfl that can do that and do it regularly and you have to defend all you know however how many square yardage the, the 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 field is i guess long story short what i'm getting to is here is it's the offensive coordinator now in the NFL, especially with veteran quarterbacks, which Josh is now, um, and he's an accomplished veteran quarterback. Once you get to that level, what you need your offensive coordinator to do is allow you to continue evolving so that you don't get stuck in the same mundane. And and listen, I mean, there were times this year where Brian Dable got stuck in some of the mundane. And, and I think it's what you saw letdowns in Jacksonville and letdowns at home in week one against the Pittsburgh Steelers. But that... 
that's not unique to Buffalo. It happens everywhere, mm-hmm. and especially with a offensive coordinator that's been in one place for as long as Brian Dable has. It's pretty unregular well, we were, to have a position like to have a offensive coordinator who's calling plays that's not a head coach be in one place for four years. That's what we were saying earlier. I, 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 I want to say it's almost unheard of. He's the longest tenured offensive coordinator we've had since the early nineties. It is, but it's not even just in Buffalo. I mean, in the league in yeah. general. No, it doesn't happen because the, you either the get fired term, or you get a job. The long term play callers are the head coaches. Yes. And it's the offensive-minded head coaches. And, you know, that's sort of the risk you run when you're a program that goes out and hires a defensive head coach like Sean McDermott is you are going to have to rely on McDermott's ability to find coaches, develop them, and, you know, obviously use the tools that they have. And a lot of what I think Sean's role is going to be moving forward, especially with this coaching staff they've now got in place, this is an incredibly young offensive coaching staff. I mean, you know, Joe Brady was the youngest play caller in the NFL last year and two years ago when he was signed um, coming out of LSU. And Ken Dorsey has never called plays before in the NFL or in college. Um, So there is a lot of inexperience. And I I wonder, you know, I I think from the outside looking in, you might worry about that. But the continuity you're getting with Dable and with Allen and knowing that the terminology and the scheme, for the most part, the fundamentals of it stay the same. um, Well, that's it because now you get a separate new pair of eyes on things. Dorsey was our passing game coordinator for this right. past season. He's familiar with the way things operate. Now, you touched on something just a second ago that I I omitted earlier, Chris, when I was outlining some of the struggles for the people who are hand-wringing over this decision to move on, or at least his decision to move on and what might come next. We have been one of the worst offenses in the NFL in yards after the catch with Brian Dable here. Yeah. And some of that has to do with the talent on hand. Mm-hmm. Some of that has to do with design. That's right. And one of the things that I hate hearing like when you talk about a screen game, you say, okay, maybe our roster just isn't built to do that. I would agree with a little bit of that because early on in the season, last year, our offensive line was big, physical guys who weren't athletic. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of athletes on that offensive line. It is. This year, I you, mean, they've got all athletes. This there. year, you with Bates got some Spencer, Raz scores up there with Spencer yeah. Brown in the lineup. All of a sudden, you saw them running more screens, and it was working. But it, it like it took them until week fourteen or fifteen to even figure it out. And also, I, one of the other things too is I think the Bills realized this year that Mitch Morse is probably the mm-hmm. most mobile center in the NFL. Um, just like in terms of his ability to move, his ability to get on the edge and there get a, out in front of linebackers. There was a play impressive. against Carolina where he he takes his man, blocks his guy off to the guard, recognizes the fact that there's a looping defender coming on a late blitz around the corner and gets to the tackle's shoulder to block him. And I was like, what, what the hell did I just watch? I thought Mitch Morse wasn't, for all the detritus people, direct towards him. Sure. That looks like a super athletic center to me. So he had his best season as a pro this year. I think a lot of it was because when Brian Dable midseason had to sort of rebuild this run game, a lot of that was due to the change in personnel. I mean, you start a running attack with Cody Ford and, you know, Cody Ford and John Feliciano. Uh, By the way, a John Feliciano that came into camp and surprised you 15 pounds lighter than you thought he was going to show up to camp at. And that's fine for most position groups when you're playing interior offensive line um, and you're building a scheme around a player being a certain body type. And, and, and in the NFL, 
these guys, th- these coaches tell you exactly what weight they want you. Well, they um, have an idea for every right. single cog in the machine that they want to run. And if you They've all got of a body sudden frame. don't fit it, yeah. that's a problem. No, and, and so listen, like you, you build the offense thinking you have those two guys. And nobody would argue that either of those guys are good on the edge. They are not yeah. good pull, uh, pulling guards. They're not nope. guys you want to get out in space. You want them to try to win at the point of attack and get downhill. Yes. And it changed... The issue with that is Mitch Morse is not that type of player. So you have Mitch Morse surrounded by two road raiders, and he's a very mobile player. So what are you going to do? You you going to build an offense around your mobile center and two guys that can't move next to him? No. You're going to build an offense and a run scheme around the two guys that are downhill road graders. You're going to run more ISO. You're going to run more power. You're mm-hmm. going to run more gap, right? Yep. And and then what I think they did and what they were able to do when Brian Bates and, and obviously you know moving, I think, a, an athletic guard in Daryl Williams, an under-impressive athletic tackle, you now have five athletes across the offensive line who A, have position flexibility, but B, can do some things that that I think Brian Dable's likely limited in doing early in the season. And in that Jacksonville game, what really came to a head in that game was their inability to just move away from the fundamental of just running up the middle. Yep. But the problem was is you just you didn't have the ability to, to do anything else. Yep. And that athleticism... We can't infused, get on the edges because our guys can't and block that, in And that, to space. me, though, is a credit towards Brian Dable, who I think remade this... this Maybe remade is, is a strong word, but I, I guess essentially pivoted with how they were trying to beat teams on the ground and became a very efficient run team towards the end of the season. You know, they're going to end up, you know, finishing, to, what, top seven, top five in, in, in rush yards per game and, and yeah. rush yards in attempt. Um but you know we know that's skewed greatly by the how good of a running quarterback Josh well, Allen this year it. has. He's the best running quarterback. Every single this year. play, you as a defensive coordinator have to know it's eleven and eleven because if you give that guy a second, you better pray somebody has their head on a swivel to get out there and try to stop him. And sometimes, like if you're Kyle Van Noy, you find out the hard way that. Even as a linebacker, you might not be that guy. You might not be good enough for it. You're not that guy, pal. <laughs> You're just not that, You're guy. not that guy. He's going to clown you. And that skews those numbers in our favor. So you look at these changes and you think about what life is going to be after Dayball. I've laid the foundation for why I don't think the sky is falling. We kind of touched on the same concept and talked about schematically how things kind of improved with personnel changes and things like that in terms of what he was able to accomplish and where Dorsey can pick this up and run with it. Now, Joe Brady, you a fan? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I, was, I was for Joe Brady to be the offensive coordinator. Um, Chris, what was the Joe Brady analogy you made before we started recording? Oh, it was, um, he was like a, uh, it's like you hit a deer and you just wounded it and you need to nurse it back to health, mm. which is what Joe Brady's in right now because hot out of LSU to Carolina and then he's got some dude from California that's got multiple chromosomes that he can't work sure. with at quarterback. Yeah. And then I'm going to give you the the cam burglar while this guy's injured. And so he gets let go because he's got no quarterback in Carolina. There was and an, so now he's like, was oh, he's, ex- am, I, am yeah. I incorrect? Was there an XFL quarterback who started for them this year? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was He was Matt Rule's college quarterback at Temple. Um, Walker? Yeah, uh, Philip Walker. He, so listen, hold on. That, that analogy got really lost on me. First of all, because when you mentioned when you hit a deer and you injure it, that yeah. you nurse it back to health, right? Like that's the common consensus. Can I just can I tell you guys a quick story? Yeah, yeah. So two years ago, uh, I was leaving a golf course, uh, and and I won't name the golf course, but it's you know it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. I pull Private. out the parking lot. Yeah, pull out of the parking lot, figures. and um, <laughs> I just I kind of sped up, right? And I'm speeding up to the stop sign, which is very close 
to the entrance, but I'm just speeding up. And a deer pops right out in front of me. Clip it. I mean, I didn't even get a chance to hit the brakes. He just came right out. And it was one of those where I, I hit him in his sort of like his hind area. And he flew, you know, I was probably up to about 30 miles per hour at this point. Okay. So I'm All increasing right. speed to 30 <clears throat> miles per hour, hit a deer. He flies about 20 feet into this ditch where he's not moving, breathing, anything. And then all of a sudden, he does one of these things where he's like, you know, does the freak out, but he can't move. He's completely like, I broke his pelvis, his whole lower body's all fucked. Like, it's just terrible. It It was terrible. And my buddy, who's with me, is a hunter. And he's like, he's like, man, he's like, if I had a gun, I'd just put it out of his misery. I'll have a gun, but I have a knife. So I'll just... I'll just, I'll, I'll end it. I'll just, because, like, I don't want this, this fucking animal to sit here and suffer for the next 20 hours and, yeah. and yelp and whatever. So he's like, I'm just, he's like, I'll do it. You drive away. At that point, it's an act of mercy. Correct. He's like, you drive away. And I'm like, I think I'll stay. Like, I'll just, like, I'm going to watch it. Like, I'll watch it. And is this, is this fucked up this story? Anyways, um, so he goes to his car, gets his knife. Goes and literally, you know, goes for the jugular. I am not a hunter, so I don't know how. Don't know. It's not. It's, it's not it, easy. It's, it's not like a human throat where. It's, it's I thought you used to hunt a couple years ago down on Chippewa. Oh well, different kind of hunting. <laughs> different kind of hunting. It's it's one of Beaver those. Hunting. I've I've seen the thing you're describing up close. A friend of mine with a GMC Sierra who did uh, one too many. He did he he did one too many tours. And just came home a, a different individual. Oh, I, the GMC Sierra is a lifestyle trait, by the way. Yeah. It's not a vehicle. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. But no, so I know, I know exactly what you're about to do, like what the thing you're describing. But here's worse. So it turned out that the knife was, on top of it being very difficult to penetrate, it was like basically dull. Oh, good. Great. So, but once you're there and you're in there, he's committed. So I'm just watching this whole thing go down, just like kind of in horror, but can't look away. And so I'm like kind of pacing. So he finally breaks through and gets the jugular and he's like, all right. And he's like, you know, that was terrible. He's like, usually it's, you know, humane and boom, I'm out. And I'm just going to let the thing bleed out. It'll be dead in five minutes. So this thing starts bleeding out. And what does it do? Pops up like nothing happened to him. Legs fine. Sprints off into the back of the woods. Yeah, that's what Joe with a, with a you cut jugular. You could have nursed that thing to health. <laughs> could have nursed it back to health, but yeah, just that's just like, like um, that's like Joe Brady getting fired in Carolina. He's wounded, and then we bring him in QB coach. We're going to nurse his career back to health. That's what it, that's what it's going to be. <sighs> I don't know where. Well, hopefully, that... our story ends better than Nate's. Yeah, yeah one would say. One would say. Jesus. So now, when you're looking at this, you say, okay, we have Ken Dorsey never called plays before, but he's been kind of steeped in what our team has been doing for mm-hmm. a few years. I think, more importantly, he's familiar with our quarterback. He's He was part of the development of Josh Allen. He was part of, he, he understands our, the passing concepts and he has a relationship with him to the point where Josh Allen was publicly g- giving him a public vote of confidence, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to the fact that even if you don't have familiarity with the job, the guy who's going to do most of the heavy lifting, you know him. You know the things that he likes, the things that he doesn't like. And situationally, I think you can find your way mm-hmm. through some of that. Joe Brady, I think that's a great thing to have in your back pocket because here's a guy who did call plays. A guy yeah. who, as your 
quarterback coach and probably, as we'll find out, passing game coordinator, mm-hmm. will work with you as someone who's called plays at, a, at both a high collegiate level and also at an NFL level, kind of understands what's happening here. How much more important, though, is the offensive line coach oh. impending higher than whatever Joe Brady's going to bring to the table? I think it's hugely important, um, and I, I sincerely hope it's Mike Munchak. Like that's did that? I wanted him years ago. He's he's the guy. And listen, you know, I I, I think a lot was made of McDermott, and you know, is he a guy that coaches want to coach with, so on and so forth? Uh, getting Brady and keeping Dorsey, I think, probably puts a lot of that to rest, right? I think so too. I think, I and think also, at least for now. And also, let, let me put it this way: if if d- before we close the show, if Br- Brian Dable, the, Sean McDermott had friction, let me let me lay it out like this: if I'm the CEO of a company and I'm the public face, I'm the one who's mm-hmm. responsible for whether this company thrives or fails. And there's a department within my company that isn't doing the thing I think they're not meeting their KPIs. Sure, and. I'm key performance uh, indicators, by the way, <laughs> for the layman out for, there, for, for the layman, for you non-business folk. So you're not hitting your KPIs and we as a group are suffering a little bit for it. I'm sure there will be friction, but that's a sp- and now you take that. Now, that's just in a business sense. Now, let's go into the sports world where everyone in order to be good has to have an ego. You are mm-hmm. required to have an ego if you're going to succeed in the NFL. Now, having an ego isn't always a negative thing. Sure. Sometimes, like, you have to believe in yourself. And you have to believe in the things that you know to be true or the things that got you to where you are. And in that way, I feel like strong personalities, like, you want those you in do. a room, especially when you're building a football team. You've been around You don't them. want yes men either. Yes. You know, like... And you don't want somebody who's going to look at the head coach and go... Sure. I, yeah, we've got one of the best wide receiver cores in the. Uh, th- let's run twelve personnel seventy percent of the game because that's what the coach wants. No. Yeah. You have an right. offensive coordinator who will stand up in a meeting and say, "Look, this is what we need to be doing, sir." I, I, now, 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 what, what I'll say is this: if there was friction, it's probably because you saw some of the stuff that you saw out of the course of the last two or three years: the red zone struggles, mm-hmm. the situational football struggles, which is essentially where the offensive coordinator makes his money. To your point, it's the two-minute drills. It's the mm-hmm. it's the small things. And so in that way, you know, the two-minute drills, the red third zone down, situations yeah. on third and long, where you go, hey, I have to have a pass. Got to have a scheme. Yeah, I got to have a good – I got to scheme up something. I yeah. have to scheme something up to get somebody open so my quarterback can make a play. That's where you'll see maybe a little bit of change. But ultimately, the face – like the operation of this team shouldn't alter a ton. No. <sighs> I guess if Sean McDermott was as bad as everyone's trying to make it out to be on Twitter, oh, it's hard to work with, blah, 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 blah. I see a guy who in 2018, mid-game, took away his defensive coordinator's job and said, hey, you're not doing the thing I think we need to be doing. I think my way's better. You sit the bench while I call defensive plays. And those defensive plays worked, by the way, in that game. Like, we stopped the bleeding and almost came back against the Chargers late in the game. But the reality is, that's something that should probably fracture a coach-assistant right, relationship. Right, and it didn't at all. Didn't at all. Yeah. They've, they've had a great relationship. Because he knew how to navigate that and say, look, I'm sorry I did this, but here's why I did it. And you still ha- and he gave him a full vote of confidence after the game. He goes, look, this isn't permanent. It's not personal. It's just football. Some of my most successful. Now, success in a business world means 
You're brought in to help make money. You're brought in to sell more. You're brought in to do whatever you do in a business, right? Some of the best and most successful salespeople, the most successful bosses that I've ever had that brought numbers in were dicks. They were hard to work with. Yes. They, they are they are they are rigid people and there's a certain type of person that is that you need that that delivers like that. And well, and but, I think for Sean McDermott, he has for the most part and largely delivered on the things he set out to do when he took over for this franchise. I think the biggest thing that flies in the face of this narrative that exists out there is the Rick Dennison fiasco of 2017. Oh, yeah. 2017 rolls around and the Bills passing game is pretty mediocre at best, right? Yeah. So That's I have this on good authority. Okay, I have, I have this on good authority. The conversation essentially went, Rick... We're not getting enough production. The passing game needs to improve. To which Dennison replied, then I need a better passer. You need to give me Nathan Peterman. Now, if you're the boss who makes a mandate that something has to improve and your underling says, well, this is what I need, who are you to stand in the way of that then? Deny somebody something they say they need and watch them fail and then blame them for it or do you give them the thing that they say that they need because they're the expert that you're relying on in their segment of what your operation is so he makes he did start him in the week one the next week the next year though that that, well so here this is where it's different though in that moment he says okay fine if this is what you think you need let me go out and get it for you i will make the choice it's hard it's ugly people won't like it but i'm gonna make the move and it blows up in everyone's, oh, everyone's face. face. Yeah, and so he falls on the sword, rightfully so. Rightfully so, he has fallen on, the sword on many swords. By the way, he and says, "This is my fault. I allowed this thing to happen." Now, when you think about a decision like that, when when you're a winning football team, and you change your quarterback and you hit a skid like that. That's a thing that should not only cost you the trust of the coaching staff, but it should fracture your locker room because it underscores that you have no faith in your team. They came out the week after they reinstated Tyrod Taylor as the starter and beat Kansas City on the road and rode a winning streak to the playoffs, Mm -hmm. shockingly. And in the offseason, Dennison was fired because Sean McDermott learned his lesson, but he said, look, I can make this work. I trust you. I'm willing to do what you think you need. But if you burn me, you're you burned done. me. Yeah. Now you're done. But also, I still needed to get better there. Yeah. But he found a way to make it work over the back half of that season when we made the playoffs. Rick Dennison. It, so in that way, if you want to tell me that Sean McDermott's hard to work with and that somehow that's going to be that, that's going to preclude our success. I'd argue that the fact that he can massage those relationships behind closed doors, regardless of what he says to the public. That's the reason that I think this he will He certainly, work. quote, survived a lot of questionable yeah. decisions because of what he does on the field and the culture that he's created. He, guys want to come here, right? Like you, you, you heard, um, you know, Greg Olson talk on the podcast. I don't know what podcast he was on, but essentially said, like, you know, I regret the decision of going to Seattle instead of going to Buffalo to go play with Josh Allen. And he went and co- played with Russell Wilson. It's not like he went and, go, went and played with Geno Smith, no. for Christ's sake. You know, so it's... Listen, I, I, I think they're in a great place. And, you know, the Dorsey, I'm looking forward to seeing what, and I said this to Sale this morning, I'm like, you know, what do you suspect his, because again, the foundation will be very similar. 
but what's his spice? Like everybody makes chili a different way. Oh, for sure. You know, so like, and but fundamentally, it's chili. Yeah. And you know, you may have all of the same ingredients, but maybe you use. More cumin. I put reaper pepper in mine. Okay, well, you're a sick, sick <laughs> fuck. Like, that makes sense. I mean, you are absolutely sick like that. Why would you do that? Because uh, I... Do other people... And do you make two chilies? One with reaper pepper and one for normal people? Uh, yes. And also, the sometimes I serve the chili with reaper pepper, and I don't tell anyone, and here's what happens. People try it, and they go... That doesn't need any extra hot sauce, but it, it didn't kill me what's in it. And I go, oh, no, that's reaper pepper, baby. And because I've learned how to navigate it the same way... That our coach learned how to navigate building a football team. Good segue. So in that way, I think this is all going to be fine, guys. I think this is much ado about nothing, but also it's imp- it's going to be interesting to see how this team changes. The spice that Ken Dorsey, whether he's cooking with Reaper peppers, whether he decides to go habanero. Cumin. Maybe, maybe he goes plain old jalapeno, mm. and he just says, listen, screen game. <laughs> That's where I'm going to be jalapeno. different. I'm going to, just a little jalapeno. We're not going to do anything going crazy. Going back to basic bitch. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Whatever it is, I'm here for it. I'm sure I'm sure Nate's here for it. We don't have a choice. No, so strap in and fucking enjoy it, guys. We got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. It's Nate Geary. And this has been your Rock Pile Report. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.